Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. Adam Feuerstein is off this week. It's Thursday, May 16th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Pretty much the only thing that united congressional Democrats and Republicans was a desire to lower drug prices. This week, that bipartisanship took a blow. STAT's Lev Fasher joins us to explain. There are a bunch of smartphone apps now to help cancer patients find clinical trials. Medical ethicist Stephanie Moraine joins us to explain why this is a lot more complicated and a lot more ethically fraught than swiping right. And finally, big tech companies are making ambitious moves into healthcare. Stats' Casey Ross joins us to talk about the employees leading that push at places like Google and Amazon. But first, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Medible. Medible provides the leading integrated cloud platform for data-driven and digitally-enabled clinical trials, allowing organizations to function as a connected team and bring effective therapies to patients faster. Learn more at Medible.com and get a demo today. That's www.medable.com. Going into 2019, lowering drug prices was just about the only issue with bipartisan support in Washington. And it seemed certain that at least some sort of legislation would get passed. But the odds of that happening started to look a little longer this week after members of Democratic leadership did something that's not unanimously popular within their own party. Stat Washington correspondent Lev Fasher joins us to explain just what's happening. Lev, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, everyone. So, Lev, last we heard, there was bipartisan support for at least some kind of drug pricing legislation. What happened? So there is and there was bipartisan support for a lot of generic drug bills that the House is voting on today, Thursday. One is the long-touted CREATES Act. Another is a bill to ban pay-for-delay practices where a brand-name manufacturer essentially pays a generic competitor to keep their new product off the market. They're seen as common sense and, frankly, incremental drug pricing bills that Democrats and Republicans can get behind. And that's really a sign of the times because the CREATES Act has has not been a, a slam dunk forever. It's It's new this year and it's really a sign of the immense political momentum. This week, though, Democrats, led by Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, decided to pair some of those generic drug bills with bills that really are are fixes to prop up and improve the Affordable Care Act and marketing the Affordable Care Act's health insurance exchanges and making them function better, essentially. Republicans don't support those in large part well, one, because they hate the Affordable Care Act, and two, because they're a very direct rebuke to a lot of Trump administration actions on health insurance. So Democrats are essentially daring Republicans to vote no on popular drug pricing legislation by packaging it with health insurance legislation. And some Democrats think that's a bad strategy. They'd rather just do the drug pricing bills in a bipartisan fashion. Anna Eshoo, who chairs the House Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee, essentially told me yesterday, I don't like what's happened. And she's one of Nancy Pelosi's biggest allies on Capitol Hill. So it's really indicative of the division within the Democratic caucus about what their approach should be here. So, Love, just how divided is the Democratic front on this one? 
Well, I think the fact that you have a subcommittee chair and a longtime Pelosi ally, as well as Peter Welch, who's one of the more outspoken House members on the issue of drug pricing, the fact that they're both willing to essentially publicly question leadership strategy is not a good sign. At the same time, I think Democrats are united in really wanting to make Republicans pay for eight years in which the GOP held the House majority and just would ceremonially dozens of times repeal the Affordable Care Act. Obviously, that never happened, even when Republicans had control of every lever of government in Washington in 2017. So Democrats really are trying to make Republicans pay for undermining the Affordable Care Act. But many would just prefer to pursue these drug pricing bills in a bipartisan way and and get a win that they can brag to their constituents about. So back to Nancy Pelosi's strategy of coupling these bits of legislation. Has this worked before? Has anyone ever successfully shamed an opposing party into backing legislation that they don't like? In short, yes, it happens all the time. In Washington, we call them show votes. One good example in our space is when Senate Republicans, I believe, put a somewhat meaningless amendment on a budget bill to allow for drug importation from Canada. Cory Booker kind of famously voted no, and it's a vote he's had to answer for in years since, even though it was totally not an impactful piece of legislation. So, Love, is there any reason Democrats are giving for this strategy beyond partisan politics? I think most of the lawmakers and the aides I spoke to when I was on Capitol Hill yesterday essentially acknowledge that it's a mix of two things. One is that it's great politics for Democrats. It forces Republicans to vote no on what essentially are some pretty popular bills, and that's going to play well into Democrats' 2020 strategy, both for the White House and in Congress. But secondarily, Democrats are arguing that they're packaging these bills together just out of budget practicality. The generic drug bills save billions and billions of dollars over the course of the next decade. The Affordable Care Act bills cost the federal government quite a bit of money because if they became law, they would enroll millions more Americans in health insurance. So yes, Democrats are arguing that they're doing this to offset the cost of their insurance bills, But people were also very frank that this is largely political. So looking forward, the two drug pricing bills that got bundled here weren't exactly hardline crackdowns on the industry. As you mentioned, they're mostly related to generics. Does what happened this week in terms of their potential future, does that dim the odds of more sweeping drug pricing legislation in the future? You know, I was asking that question yesterday on the Hill, and people really didn't want to get too ahead of themselves because Nancy Pelosi's policy team and the White House are still in talks about some type of potential drug pricing package that hypothetically would go much further than the bills that the House is voting on today. So if there's this degree of partisan squabble over measures that just weeks ago were seen as incremental, yeah, it really bodes poorly for any type of more ambitious legislation that Democrats and Republicans might try to work together on later in the year. So, Love, what's the next thing you're going to be watching for in this saga? So because the House is controlled by Democrats, they're still going to pass these bills despite the controversy. And I'm going to be curious to see what the Senate does with them. I would imagine that if the Senate is interested in advancing these drug pricing bills, they can move them as a standalone package and send it back to the House, which, of course, is what some House Democrats and almost all House Republicans think should have happened in the first place. But that would be the next step, and it's the next opportunity for Congress to achieve some kind of meaningful action on drug prices. But we're also still waiting for a a broader and supposedly more aggressive package worked out between Pelosi and the White House, and that might not come for many more months still. Lev, thanks for joining us. Thank you all. 
So if you talk to cancer researchers about barriers to scientific progress, you'll probably hear this statistic. Only about 8% of people with cancer actually take part in clinical trials. Now, this being 2019, a lot of people think the problem can be solved with mobile apps that connect patients to the trials that might be right for them. But again, this being 2019, the use of such technology raises some thorny questions about privacy, consent, and conflict of interest. Stephanie Moraine is a medical ethicist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. She just wrote a paper digging into all of the ethical issues that arise when you take something as complicated as clinical trial recruitment and put it on a phone. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. So Stephanie, what kind of technology are we talking about here? How do these apps work? One of the most helpful analogies I've seen for these apps is people equate them to OpenTable or to Tinder. So if we think about when you're trying to figure out you know, what restaurant you go to, if, you know, you can open up OpenTable, see what restaurants actually have availability that night and, you know, decide, do this criteria and start screening out based on, you know, Mexican or Italian. And some of these apps actually aim to do something similar so that you can use GPS mapping features to identify what trials are actually in your area, because we know that um, trials increasingly have more and more inclusion exclusion criteria and may only be offered in areas that aren't geographically located to participants. So the goal of some of these apps is to aggregate all of those trials, but also to help individuals identify what trials they actually are eligible for and do it in a way that, you know, is easy user interface rather than having to kind of go to every individual, perhaps, you know, major cancer center's website and try to see what trials are available. It would put it in the palm of your hands like so many other searches that we are used to doing on a day-to-day basis. So what problem are these apps trying to address? What these apps are trying to do is address the fact that, I think as you said, about 8% of individuals who are eligible actually join a cancer clinical trial. And so this has been an issue which has long been identified by the field as one of the key barriers for progress in research. And there are certainly practical problems with having recruitment be so low, but there's also ethical challenges. In part, trials that don't meet enrollment are more likely to go unpublished, and that means that participants are incurring risks and burdens without the downstream social value. So one of the goals of these apps is to address this problem and increase recruitment. But as you point out in your paper, consenting to a clinical trial is a lot more complicated and fraught than just swiping right on Tinder. Um, You outlined a number of ethical issues that are at play with these apps, including privacy and cost and conflict of interest. Which ethical issue stood out to you as the most concerning? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's important to focus here on is the recruitment materials that are being presented to patients and how patients are indicating their agreement, even at the point of using the app. Often patients, when they're agreeing to use these apps, are using what are often referred to as click wrap agreements. So these are those things that, you know, when you want to download an app on your phone, you often have to scroll through a bunch of, you know, tiny text on your screen and click, I agree to actually be able to download the app. It's not a new concern. It's well documented that people don't often read the click wrap agreements and many of the components within those click wrap agreements in the tiny text may involve data sharing agreements for which individuals might not fully be aware of what they're agreeing to share. 
And the second piece I think is important to pay attention to here is not only do our patients aware of how information about them might be shared, but also are these apps actually living up to their own standards with respect to how data will be shared with third parties. So in your paper, you use the term therapeutic misbranding to describe the ways in which clinical trial recruitment apps may sell false hope to patients. Tell us what you're seeing there. So a central concern for research ethics is ensuring that patients understand the distinction between clinical research and clinical care. We've long known that research participants often misunderstand the goals of research and perceive that research procedures are being done for their individual patient benefit rather than for the real goal, which is generating socially valuable knowledge. We had a concern that some of these apps particularly their marketing materials, risk exacerbating this tendency because they inappropriately conflate clinical research with clinical care. So one line in your paper really stood out to me in particular. That was, quote, even if app users are not deliberately sharing personal information, they will passively share it. Mere use of an app can be a rich source of data, end quote. Tell us more what you mean there. In some cases, individuals might choose to share information through the app, family members or friends about their trial participation. What we wanted to highlight also is that sometimes there's also additional sharing of this information with third parties through data aggregators, and some of this information could be linked to the individual. So we think it's important for individuals to know how their data might be used and the motivations for the individuals who might want access to that data. So Stephanie, what made you decide to tackle this subject? The way we actually got onto this topic was through a stat article that Rebecca wrote earlier this year about this one company driver. And we were really interested because, to be honest, the issue of apps to be used for clinical trial recruitment wasn't on our radar. So we saw your article and then went to their website and thought it was a interesting model and offered promise, but we were concerned about some of the marketing materials that this company was using and thought it was important to make sure that we highlight some of the ethical challenges that are raised, particularly given that many of these apps aren't going to be developed by individuals who are familiar with um, the norms of medical research. So Driver abruptly shut down last November after just a couple months in business. Stephanie, you wrote in your paper about the risk that shutdowns like this could interrupt patient care and or research. Why is that a concern? So for some of these apps, they're largely acting as data aggregators and letting patients know of trials that are available to them. If an app like that shuts down, we think it's less likely to disrupt clinical care and clinical research. Where we think potentially the risk might lie is if this app is being used as kind of either the primary repository for information um, related to the patient's clinical care or research participation, or um, potentially in the case of Driver, where the app was individuals were paying up to $3,000 for access to this platform and may have put out you know, a substantial amount of money, often for the promise of having information about their tumor sequence that might match them then to another trial. And our concern is that if there is information relevant to the patient's clinical trial participation or clinical care, that we need to make sure that that app isn't the only repository of important information and the patient can then be able to transfer this information elsewhere, given that we know some of these apps like in other spaces, often fail. We want to make sure that that information isn't lost. So you make the point in your paper that this sort of brave new world needs a regulatory roadmap to make sure that society benefits from the positive implications of the technology and doesn't suffer from the negative ones. What would that roadmap look like? 
I think this is going to need to be the work of multiple stakeholders to identify how we can best realize the benefits while being aware of these potential challenges. I think that there's certainly a role for funders here, but also academic medical centers and IRBs and the individual physician investigators as well. So I think at least starting to raise some of these issues with those stakeholders, I think is going to be the first step to identify what the rules of the road should be from here. Great. Stephanie, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I appreciate the chance to talk with you. In the past few years, one of the biggest stories in medicine has centered around big tech companies and their ambitious moves into healthcare. So to try to become serious players in health and medicine, companies like Google, Amazon, and Microsoft have gone on hiring sprees. And that's meant bringing in tons of big-name doctors and medical researchers and biotech scientists. But who are the most important health-focused employees at these big tech companies? I spent a lot of my time as a reporter covering health tech, but I didn't know the answer. So along with Stats national technology correspondent Casey Ross, I set out to find out. So in the past few weeks, Casey and Rebecca have put out stories mapping out the five most influential people working on healthcare at each of the big tech companies. That's Verily, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple. And Casey joins us today to talk about what they learned from that reporting. Casey, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on again. So from the outset, why did you guys decide to embark on this reporting exercise? These are huge, powerful companies, and there's tremendous interest in how they're approaching healthcare. Because they're so sprawling, it's also hard to know who's in charge of the various divisions and projects within healthcare. It's much harder to know who controls the levers of health power at Alphabet compared to just casually going on to the leadership tab on a big pharma company's website. So it's something we wanted to take on as a service to readers. So in terms of numbers, specifically headcount numbers, what did you learn about how many people are working on health at these big tech companies? So the folks at Alphabet, that's the parent company containing Google and its various spinoffs, actually gave me some concrete estimates. So Google has somewhere in the hundreds, but less than 1,000 employees working on health. Verily has about 700 employees doing that. And Calico, that's the spin-out devoted to researching the biology of aging, has about 200 people. So by way of comparison, uh, pretty well-known biotech companies like Insight, Moderna, and Seattle Genetics all employ somewhere in the ballpark of 700 to 900 people. We also asked Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft for headcount estimates, but they wouldn't comment. I also got the sense that the headcount is a bit complicated because they have engineers who are working on different projects that stretch across the divisions within the companies. So it's a little bit hard to say exactly. So if I wanted to kind of understand what's going on here and know a few names that these big tech companies to watch out for, which names should those be? So at Google, you should know the name Dr. David Feinberg. He just joined Google at the start of this year after being poached from Geisinger. That's the Pennsylvania health system where he developed a reputation as something of an innovator. I saw him speak at the Milken conference in LA a couple weeks ago, and he talked about this really ambitious vision he has spanning the arc of his career, which started after he trained as a child psychiatrist. He wants to scale up and has been progressively trying to scale up how many patients he can actually reach. Now, realizing that at Google will be another challenge entirely. Then at Apple, a name you should know is Dr. Sambal Desai. Um, She 
oversees some of Apple's most visible health work, um, including the cardiology efforts with the Apple Watch. And she joined Apple nearly two years ago from Stanford. I'd say the top person to follow at Amazon would be Dr. Taha Kashut. He's the former chief informatics officer at the FDA and is now a senior leader of artificial intelligence at Amazon Web Services, the company's cloud arm. He spearheaded the company's recent push to use machine learning to extract valuable information that often gets locked in electronic health records. He's also a really engaging person to talk to. I met with him at uh, Hims this year uh, in Orlando, and he's really interesting and thoughtful on you know the need for careful ethical and scientific stewardship of AI and medicine, which is moving at a pretty rapid pace. At Microsoft, Peter Lee is someone you'll want to follow. He leads the healthcare group at Microsoft and has recruited a lot of clinical expertise in the past year or so. He's the former uh, head of the computer science department at Carnegie Mellon and has a hand in a lot of Microsoft's most important projects in healthcare to use AI to analyze health data through its Azure cloud platform and create products to ease documentation burdens on doctors. So when these big tech companies hire up doctors and medical researchers, where are they hiring them from? Each other in some cases. Dr. Greg Moore just joined Microsoft and he was poached from Google. Uh, these companies are also hiring a lot from large academic medical centers around the country. Yeah, I noticed a lot of poaching, especially among these Silicon Valley companies from Stanford and UCSF, that's the University of California at San Francisco, devoted to medical research. What's intriguing is that some of these employees overseeing powerful health roles at big tech companies are physicians who still see patients part-time. So upon reflections, what were your biggest takeaways from this reporting exercise? Well, I think the main takeaway for me was eagerness among these companies to be in the healthcare game, their desire to talk about it. I think you're seeing their interest in being more public about what they're doing is increasing. And the exercise gave me a much better understanding of the lanes of focus within these companies. Yeah, I agree. I think I learned a lot doing this as well. You know, I, I can rattle off the names of CEOs of some of the most important biotech and pharma companies, but I feel now that I have a much better sense of sort of who's important at these companies, which are becoming major players in the healthcare space. And if you're interested in following more of Stat's coverage of big tech companies and their push into health and medicine, you can sign up for a new weekly newsletter from Casey and Rebecca. It is called Stat Health Tech, and it's free, and it will appear in your inbox every Wednesday morning. You can sign up by going to Stat's website. Casey, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Happy to join you guys. does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode or even what you didn't like. You can send us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.